0: So glad that you're here. We are going to finish our study of 1 John this morning. It's the letter that John wrote uh, near the end of his life and the end of the first uh, century. And I, I was just thinking about it um, as we were doing the Advent reading and singing the uh, Christmas song. And uh, we're in that season right now. And I, I think about it sometimes during this time of year. So, John, and it most of the tradition is that he wrote, when he wrote this letter, he was in Ephesus, okay? And that at some point um, before A.D. 70, let's say this, um, he leaves Israel, leaves Jerusalem, and goes to Ephesus to kind of be, you know, a pastor emeritus, sort of a pastor in residence. But he's not the pastor of the church, the one who is probably the pastor of the church, is young Timothy. And not only did John come, but likely John brought Mary with him. And that she died in in Ephesus. And so I just think about Timothy during the Advent season with John and Mary in his congregation. And how does the young man stand up and preach the night that Jesus was born in front of the woman to whom Jesus was born. I mean, that's a lot of pressure, right? I, I remember the first church I went to, uh, I was the third pastor in 50 years. Both of the widows of the previous two pastors were still in the congregation. That was intimidating. But neither one of them was Mary, okay? That's a, uh, that's a thing. I, I just always think that. I don't know what you… It's probably it's like Testimony Sunday, you know? I mean, Mary, come up and tell us. What that was like. Uh, at least that's what I would do. So, all right. Here, here's what I want us to do. We're gonna. I'm gonna start in verse 13. So I'm First John chapter five. I'm gonna start in verse 13. We're gonna go all the way to 21. So here's what I want to do. I want to read these verses. And as I read these verses aloud, what I want is is I want your mind to be engaged with the words of the text, with with God's words and And in doing that, I want you to look for the questions that you might ask from these verses, all right? Um, Some of them will be incredibly obvious to you. Um, These are are some of the hardest, a couple of verses in here, some of the hardest in the New Testament. But let's do that. I'm going to read, start in verse 13 of chapter 5. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter, and as I'm reading it, I want you engaged with the text, whether you're here or you're online, and I want you to think about the questions that if you could ask John, related to this text, what would those questions be? And here's how he wraps up the letter. This is his conclusion, or his epilogue, if you will. 1 John 5, beginning in verse 13. Verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he will hear us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask God, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. And his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I I pray you would help us this morning to understand your word. I pray, Father, even more than understanding, you, you you would bore it down into our lives. That, Father, it would be transforming to us that it wouldn't return void to us this morning and so i pray that you would help us by your spirit and we pray this in the name of your son jesus amen well Depending on what translation you have and how the paragraphs are divided, sometimes verse 13 appears with the section that's before this. Sometimes, like the ESV here, the, the verse 13 appears with the last part of the section. It's a transition verse, but it's also the purpose statement of the letter. This is what John has been writing. This is the purpose for which he's been writing because he wants to assure us, he wants us to have... As believers. He wants us to have assurance that we are saved. He wants us to have assurance of our eternal life. The whole letter has been uh, this one grand argument for believers so that we would not live in doubt, but we would live in assurance of our salvation because God wants us to be sure of our salvation. John wants us, if you'll notice there in verse 13, he wants us to know. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This word know, super important word in John's letter, but almost half of the the uses of this word know, he's been writing to us so that we would know certain things. And almost half of them, seven times from verse 13 to verse 21, this last section, seven times he's going to use that word. He wants us to know. It starts back, uh, verse 13, uh, that you may know you have eternal life. In verse 15, if we know he hears us, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. In verse 18, we know that everyone born of God doesn't keep sinning, and God protects him, and the evil one doesn't touch him. Verse 19, we know that we are from God. And in verse 20, we know that the Son of God, he's, he's come, He's given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and that we are in Him. Of the seven knows, there six of them. If you take nerdy notes in your Bible, the first six of them are what's Um, called the perfect tense in the Greek. It it means, uh, literally, that it's a completed action that occurred in the past, but has produced a state of being, or a result, that exists in the present. What, What it means is, the reason that we know is because we have known. This is truth that came to us by faith. This is the... The, the milk of the word that we, um, that, that we were uh, um, uh, nurtured on as, as new believers. It's the milk of the word that is, that is unchanging. It's the theology of the gospel of Jesus that you believed and you came to know. And he says, Listen, you know this. You don't have to doubt this. This is part of the, as Paul would say in Romans 8. This is part of the nothing-can-separate-you-from-the-love-of-God theology that you know. And it's not, a, it's not a reality or a truth that changes no matter how you feel in any given moment. This is assurance. And the assurance of your salvation, it, listen, it's not only possible, it's part of the gift of of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. and In John's mind from the beginning of this letter, he's been aiming it at us. He's been aiming for us to have a growing confidence in our assurance. In fact, he's been taught, he's talked about that word confidence. Um, a few times, It, it shows up in the very next verse, in verse 14, but this growing confidence of assurance of our salvation and eternal life, when we consider his second coming, he says in chapter 228, when we think about Jesus coming again, that he wants us to have this confidence, this growing confidence, this assurance of our salvation. In chapter 3, verse 21, it's, it's, he's aiming at this growing confidence of the assurance of our salvation and eternal life when our heart seeks to condemn us. Whether it's the enemy that comes along, or it's the remembrances of your past, or it's when our heart seeks to condemn us, or, or it's in the present moment when you find yourself convicted of sin. John wants us to be confident. He wants us to have assurance. In chapter 4, verse 17, it's a growing confidence of the assurance of our salvation and eternal life. When we think about the day of judgment that's coming for the world, that we do not have to fear the judgment. And then as he says in this next verse, chapter 5, verse 14, that it's a growing confidence confidence of our assurance when we go to Him in prayer, knowing that He hears us. Assurance comes to us as believers by way of salvation. There's no assurance without salvation. Believing in the name of the Son of God brings with it assurance. You can be sure of your eternal life. Now, in verses 14 through 17, this comprises a, a little subsection of this last conclusion here. And there's two parts of it. There's verses 14 and 15, and there's verses 16 and 17. So, what he's going to argue is this is this is assurance. So, there are some ways that we… Um, Uh, there's the internal assurance that we have that the Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit comes. He he works in our life. There's an assurance that the Holy Spirit brings. There is also this external proof of assurance, and that's God's Word. We can believe what God's Word says about our salvation. He's also going to talk about that there there are things that evidence um, our salvation that also provide assurance. It's three things. It's the internal Holy Spirit, the external Word, and then there's this evidence that shows up in our lives. And one of those evidences is our relationship to God in prayer. Now, look at it again in verses 14 and 15. He says, and this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask... We know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. Now, first thing to notice is this is not self-confidence, and this is the comment. It's not self-confidence. It's confidence that we have toward Him, which means that our prayers toward Him uh, they they don't depend necessarily on us. It's not that we don't have to have the right formula. We don't have to have the right big theological words. We don't have to have this sinless stretch of of living. You know, I mean, you know. Do I have to be sinless for three days and then I can pray and be heard? Do I have to be sinless for five days and pray and be heard? The confidence isn't in us. The confidence is in him. And John wants us to know that we can receive what we ask of God through prayer. But he wants us to understand this biblically. He wants us to understand this rightly. See, prayer, it's not wishful thinking. It's not hoping against hope. It's not dreaming big. It's not, you know, the the desires to fulfill the longings of your flesh. John wants to make clear, God's not a genie in, in a bottle. And as a believer, you know, you get... You get three wishes and one of the wishes can't be that you get more wishes. We, we mustn't fall in to what I think is dangerous and unspiritual ways of thinking about prayer that amount to us imposing our will on God or us bending His will to our wants. I think there's teaching out there today. There's teaching that will come across your Facebook feed. There's teaching that will be sung in the songs that you listen to. That there is a prosperity theology out there that says if you believe hard enough, God will fulfill your wishes. And John is saying, listen, no, here's what you can be sure of. You can be sure that God hears your prayers, and you, he hears your prayers as you pray according to his will. So what prayer means is not that I'm trying to bend God to my will, although that we all do that at times, but that when we pray, We're praying to God, and in that, we're not alone. The Holy Spirit's praying from within us, and Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, praying with us and for us to the Father. That in our prayers, our will aligns with God's will. You see this great picture of it, Jesus in his humanity in the garden, praying to God the Father. If there be any other way, would you take this cup from me? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And, and that's the, the attitude of our prayer. I'll give you an example. So, so George Mueller was a guy that lived in the 19th century. In fact, almost the whole span of the 19th century. Lived in 95 years from 1805 to 1898. And so for many years, he says he prayed one way. He said this, for many years, I lived by getting up early in the morning, praying and then eating breakfast and then considering the word of God. I discovered in my own experience that it was much better to reverse things. This is much better to get your spirit happy with the Lord. To become joyful. So I started getting up in the morning and reading the Bible. And I found that by reading the Bible, it caused me to confess, to express worship and praise, and all of the things that one naturally does reading the Holy Scripture. Then I came down to breakfast, and my spirit was happy in the Lord. And through the rest of the day, Already prayed as I read the Word of God, things would occur to me, and I would pray in the light of the holy scripture of God that 's been going on now for many years, and i 've found that it means a great deal to me. So what Mueller's saying is it, what, what happened is I, I would go I would pray to God and I 'd go eat breakfast and i 'd go and i 'd spend time in god 's Word and when I reversed that, what I found is that when I was in god 's Word that by his spirit in in this living word, that God would bring the things to my mind to pray for. I would be praying according to his scripture. I'd be worshiping according to his scripture. I, I I, I would be praying through the lens of how God sees the world. And I think that's good advice for us. To read the word of God And then in reading the Word of God, there comes to you things over which you need to pray. Maybe it's conviction. Maybe there's correction that needs to happen in your life. Maybe there's things to give praise for. Maybe in the reading of God's Word, somebody will come to your mind and the Spirit of God impresses upon you to pray for this person, to intercede for this person. That happens to me all the time. It's praying to God by the Spirit in sync with the will of God according to His will. We find ourselves praying supernaturally really as opposed to our natural instincts of wishing and hoping and wanting. We see how those prayers are answered when we pray according to His will and that builds our confidence and God wants us to pray and He wants us to see how He answers those prayers. Mueller ended by saying, Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of His willingness. Therefore, nothing we ask lies beyond the power of God except that which lies beyond His will and His purpose and His plan. It's so encouraging to me. God bids us to pray and He wants us to pray and He invites us to the throne room. He wants us to know his will, even though it's infinite and we're finite. But we catch glimpses of it, and the Spirit of God leads us. And oh, how I wish the letter ended here. Oh, how I wish, I guess, that he said, love John. But instead, what John does is he writes verses 16 and 17. So look with me at verses 16 and 17 real quick again. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God, or he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. what he's saying here is that, listen, we pray according to God's will, we, we pray in sync with, uh, with, with God's desires, and we also, not only praying for ourselves and praying in sync with God's, we're also praying for one another, we're, we're interceding for one another. And we're interceding for one another when we observe about each other that life is in, in, in sin, that. We we want to intercede for that. We intercede for, for more than that. But John has something specific in mind, and he's saying, listen, when we see a brother or we see a sister in sin, we want to pray for them. We want to intercede for them. We want to go to the throne for them at that moment because they're not at the throne where they need to be at that moment. We pray for one another. And then he says, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is a sin that leads to death. Um, So uh, these are hard things that John writes. In fact, there are pages and volumes filled over 2,000 years of the church trying to work out and understand what it is that John means here. I'll read you from how Swindoll begins it. He says, Having racked my brain for years over these two verses, I have to commend Kenneth West." For his honesty, when faced with this puzzling passage, the present Weist writes: the present writer confesses his utter inability to understand this verse and will not attempt to offer even a suggestion as to its possible interpretation. By the way, Weist is a renowned New Testament scholar. Swindoll says at the beginning of his commentary, he says. I've been in the pulpit since 1963, preaching every Sunday, and I didn't preach First John for 46 years, because there are things I have not been able to figure out. So, with that said, great New Testament scholar, has no idea the possible meaning, Chuck Swindoll, Golden mouth of our generation didn't preach it for 46 years I'm going to humbly offer you what I think it means all right putting it in that context so if you disagree with me great you're one of hundreds of people uh, that listening to this that'll disagree with me I, I'll, I'll tell you what some of the possible uh, let me I guess outline what 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 people say that it it could mean. There are four or five different things that you usually read. One um, that who he's referring to is is believers here. There's good argument for that because in beginning in verse sixteen he says if anyone sees a brother committing sins, so it, it, it could be um, it is said that that who is on John's mind here is believers, and that. Um, Believers um, commit sins that don't lead to death all the time. That, that's what you and I do. We, we do that all the time. That's why in 1 John 1 8 through 10, we're to say, we're not to be people who say, well, we don't have any sin. Well, of course we have sin. What we're to do is we're to confess our sin, and then he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we don't have any sin, we say he's a liar. That's what he says there. So the sins that don't lead to death. These are sins of, of of believers that we that we're guilty of all the all the time. But it is said that what John has in mind here is that there is a persistent sin, or a, um, and it's not a particular sin; it's just sin. Sin that persists long enough, or heinous enough, or ugly enough, that God's chastisement is to bring physical death to the believer. Not judgment, but discipline. I think one writer says it doesn't mean they're not fit for heaven. It just means they're not fit for earth. That's one possible explanation to this. It's not the explanation that I take. Another explanation is that this is an apostasy. It's a believer, but that they've sinned long enough and persistent enough that they have lost their salvation or they have renounced their salvation. And that is a sin that leads to death. I don't think it could be apostasy. I don't think he's talking about losing your salvation, particularly since he begins this section to write, I'm writing to assure you of your salvation. One of the other possible explanations is that he's speaking about those who profess Christ that are in the church to say, oh, I'm a Christian and I you know, listen to Christian music and I, I profess Christ but they don't really possess Christ. And I don't think he's talking about that category of people. The fourth... One that people usually talk about is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You find this in the Gospels. Jesus says, um, you know, you can blaspheme me, but don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It's probably a very contextual statement of Jesus, a, something specific that could happen in the first century. Didn't hold in John's day, I don't think, and I don't think it holds today. I don't think that's what he's talking about. Well, so I've taken those four off table, what could it possibly mean? Here's what I offer you that it means. I think what he's talking about is I think he's talking about here unbelievers who have rejected Jesus as the Son of God who is the Messiah, who is the Savior. Because the reality is this, all sin leads to death. Remember what John or what Paul writes in Romans 3.23? For the wages of sin are what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life. And the reason he can say that is because of what he writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that he who knew no sin became sin. And he died with it and for it so that we might become the righteousness of God. So on the one hand, all sin leads to death. The reason that sin does not lead to death for a believer is because that sin has been atoned for. That sin has been what John says in 1 John 2:2. It's been propitiated for. It's been paid for. That sin has already incurred the wrath of God in the Son of God and so now it can be forgiven of you it can be washed clean off of you away from you that you no longer will stand judgment for your sin now you may be disciplined for your sin you may be chastised for your sin I mean you've Discipline, the children that you love, God says that. But what he's speaking about here, the sin that doesn't lead, uh, the sin that leads to death, it's the sin of unbelievers, and it's the sin he's been talking about all the way through this letter, that those that do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is that he is the Savior of the world, that he is the Messiah, they are not of God. And so every sin. In their life, leads to death. It's very possible he may be even speaking about those who have died in their sin apart from Christ. As believers, we don't, we don't pray for the dead, we pray for the living. It's all wrongdoing is sin. But no, the Christian doesn't have to worry about God blasting them because they did a thing that they knew or didn't know was really wrong and really awful. John does not mean that if you're a Christian and you do something really bad, you sin big, that God's going to kill you or send you to hell. But apparently, the Gnostics... False teachers. They were peddling a lie that said something like that. They were offering their own version of assurance that was grounded in a confidence in themselves, not a confidence toward God. And John says, No, that's not truth. All right, that's my best shot. Look at verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God. does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. See, so as John's thinking about things that build our confidence, in our confidence towards God, trusting God in the assurance that we have, the assurance of salvation, the assurance of our eternal life, one of the things is answered prayer. When we're praying to God by the Spirit and sink of the will of God according to His will, praying supernaturally as the Spirit leads us. Another way our confidence is built is when we see our relationship to sin and to the world and to the evil one change. We know, he says... That everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. And we know that we're from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now listen, we've said this over and over again. Sin's not impossible for the Christian, but it's certainly incompatible with the Christian life. We've been born of God. We said, listen, we've been fathered by God, which means we have this spiritual DNA that has been born into us, and His Spirit indwells us, and we are one with Christ. And there has been this radical change that has taken place in us. We are new creations. And while the change is radical, our experience of that change sometimes feel like a slow and painful transformation. Radical change. There are times we'll feel the discouragement that can hit us during the transformation, but we are being transformed. And how we know, listen, we find that our affections and our appetites for sin, they're spoiled. Not necessarily that temptation is diminished, but that the fruit of sin is spoiled. Actually, listen to the fruit of sin has always been spoiled. You just didn't have the spiritual taste buds to discern it like you do now as one who is saved and has the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. That your affection towards sin changes. Your appetite for sin changes. The other thing is you find yourself out of sync with the world around you. Your affections are less and less aligned with the world's affections. It shows up. You'll feel this. uh, Chip Ingram calls it a holy discontent that we end up having. You're out of sync with the world. The other is, the third is that we find our perspective on evil in the world has been altered. Our hope is not, as believers, our hope is not in changing circumstances, although we can certainly pray for circumstances to change. We desire circumstances to change. But our hope is not in changing circumstances. Our hope is fixed on the unchanging God. So while evil is still present, and evil may crash into your lives and create Chaos and and in the circumstances of our lives and relationships and our bodies, the evil one does not touch us, so to speak. The intended desire of the evil one and the evil in this world that he orchestrates does not have its intended effect upon believers, at least not ultimately. Doesn't mean you won't be discouraged. But it means as a believer, you can begin to see that suffering and that disappointment and that loss and that hurt as something that's bigger, something that ultimately will be redeemed. C.S. Lewis says, all bad things will come untrue. You could go to Job and you can read The 42 chapters of Job's experience. Paul. I count everything as loss. John knew suffering, he knew evil that had crashed into his world, and yet he doesn't write with hints of discouragement, he writes with joy. That's not to mention Jesus. Well, look at verses twenty and twenty-one, and we'll we'll wrap this up. And we know that the Son of God's come and given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. And in many ways, he sums up there everything he said about Jesus. And then ends, little children, keep yourself from idols. The last thing John says we know is that the Son of God has come and he's given us, us a saving knowledge of God, how God saves, that God wants to save. He's united us with him by his Spirit so that we're in him who's true sums up everything John's been teaching. Then he says that Jesus, the Son, Jesus Christ, is is the true God and eternal life, and everything else we might be tempted to rely upon for salvation is an idol. Maybe it's a different Jesus other than the God-man that the New Testament tells us. Maybe it's a different gospel, something other than the atoning death and the resurrection of Jesus. It may be a different means of salvation other than grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Anything that we conjure up that replaces the true God in eternal life is an idol. So he warned his little children, Keep yourselves from idols, and they can be anything in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives that we elevate above God. Any object of devotion that distracts us from Christ, any sin that separates us from the reconciliation and the intimacy with God, any good work that we might try to perform to gain His favor, any truth that we claim to prefer, over God's truth, over God's word. See, for those of us who are believers, we have absolute assurance of our salvation, Christ and Christ alone. It's the object of our priorities and our passions and our pursuits, and when we, when we stumble from that, we confess it. All other things have to take second place. Everything else falls under our affection for God in His Son, Jesus. will give you an illustration. Near the end of the war with, with Germany in World War II, and the Allied bombs are coming and they're raining down on Stuttgart and the Nazi regime is, is, is being defeated. There's a Lutheran pastor there named Helmut Thielik. And he preaches this, this sermon series during these days to the believers that are huddled there. And he, the sermon series are on the Lord's Prayer. And they've been losing m- members every week to to death, and then they're gathered in this church that's been ruined by the bombings. They're this little bitty light in the midst of all this darkness, and he uses these, the Lord's prayer as this map for them, and he, and he locates this experience. He says this, listen, here's two realities and they're both happening at the same time. You, you think about them as, as lines. This first line, it's this descending line. It's a line that starts up and it goes down and it's been going down all throughout the history of mankind and it indicates that mankind is constantly living further and further and further away from God. It's our world. It's what he says in in verse 19. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But then there's this other line, and it starts here in our lives, and and it moves this direction, and it started here at the birth of the church, and it's been moving this direction. It's been moving upward. It's an ascending line of Christ's dominion over our lives. And this descending line does not in any way affect this ascending line. It goes on simultaneously. No matter what else is happening in the world. He ends it this way. In, with, and under the world's anguish and distress. In, with, and under the hail of bombs and mass murders. We could add this morning in, with, and under a pandemic or a financial crisis or a social, cultural crisis or political crisis or God is building His kingdom. This is what John has been telling us. And as believers, we can take heart. And as believers, we can trust God. As believers, we can know Jesus is God and He is the grace and He is the gospel of God. Well, I could spend another hour talking about this letter. I'm sorry to see us as a congregation come to the end of it, but here's the great news it's still in your Bible. commend you to spend time here. It's a great place to spend time during these, this holiday season as we remember the coming of Christ and we, we kindle in us afresh our hope for His second coming. And so if you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. As people who want to commit to keep keeping themselves from idols, keeping themselves from every other thing that would compete for the place of Christ in our life. If you, Father, I pray that you would do what only you can do. And I pray that you would take these words, these living words that you revealed to John and inspired him to write and Father you 've preserved for these two thousand years for our good that father you would draw us to your son that when you say in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us in gave His only Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's love. Would you you draw us to a greater clarity of your love for us? Father, would you help us to experience more and more the transformation that the radical change of our salvation has brought about. Father, by your Spirit, would you draw us to your Word? Would you draw us in prayer to you? We would experience praying to you and bringing our requests and bringing our intercessions and bringing our fears To you. And Father, would we experience knowing that you hear us and that you answer us according to your will. Father, in all these things, I pray that your Son looks beautiful among us and in us. And that Father, all of this is to your glory. We pray.